The following sermon is by Hunter Hayes, Assistant Pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Hunter. I trust you all had a wonderful Thanksgiving this last week. My family did enjoy a nice trip to Hilton Head Island to be with my grandparent, my well, my grandpa and uh, my parents and Sarah's parents. And you did hear about a race that took place, and it was really just a fun run. But let me tell you, the real athletic accomplishment uh, has to be my wife, who completed the race, uh, ran the whole thing, and if you've seen Sarah recently, you know that pushing a stroller is uh, nothing like what she had to do as far as uh, an athletic accomplishment. So she had one of the finest races of her life. I did get a video of her finishing and passing people on the way in, and uh, they should all be ashamed of themselves. So, <laughs> All right, well, it is the season of Thanksgiving, and so that led me to just think about the Psalms. And uh, we love the Psalms because they express all kinds of emotions. And uh, we oftentimes we'll go to the Psalms when uh, we want to rejoice or when we're feeling sad um, or uh, sometimes when we just want to praise the Lord. Uh, uh, biblical scholars will um, group uh, different Psalms based on their characteristics and themes into several different buckets. One of the buckets that they will put uh, many of the Psalms in is uh, the bucket of thanksgiving. So there, there's an entire genre of Psalm which is uh, referred to as Thanksgiving Psalms. And typically they will include the word Thanksgiving, um, or the theme will be very much in line with Thanksgiving. So I thought we'd look at one today. But as I survey uh, the entirety of the book of Psalms, um, you come away with many different things that we can give thanks to the Lord for. And so as you're thinking this week, and I know we're coming off of Thanksgiving, but we should still be uh, thinking about being thankful at this time. Um, let's consider some of the things that the psalmists uh, thank the Lord for. So I've kind of I've grouped them into different uh, groupings here. So one of the things that, that psalm, the psalmist will thank God for is for God's provision. So uh, you can take down some of these notes if you'd like. Um, I'm just going to mention, I'm just going to rapid fire a bunch of psalms. So Psalm 30 verse 7 uh, gives thanksgiving to God for his strength and the way it's displayed. Psalm 33 verse 4 will uh, give thanks to God for his word. In Psalm 34 verse 10, uh, thanking God for temporal needs that he's given. So it says that the young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. The Lord provides for those who are his. Uh, they'll also uh, praise God for uh, just granting stability in life. That's Psalm 66, verse 9, uh, for being the psalmist's help, for helping, uh, Psalm 118, verse 7, for victory in battle, Psalm 144, verse 10. The Psalms will also give thanksgiving to God for being a comforter, for providing comfort. So in Psalm 30, verse 5, we see thanksgiving being offered to God for joy being restored to somebody who did not have joy. Uh, in Psalm 34, verse 4, we have deliverance from fear. Psalm 116, verse 8, deliverance from sadness. That verse says, For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. And then also God's comforting presence, which we'll see in our psalm today, uh, Psalm 118, verse 7. The Psalms will also thank God and praise Him for His sovereignty. So in Psalm 28, verse 7, there's thanking God for answering prayer. In Psalm 66, verse 19, thanking God for listening to our prayers. Psalm 75, verse 7, thanking God for exalting the humble. And in Psalm 138, verse 8, praising God that He fulfills His purposes for His people. So that verse says, Though I walk in the midst of trouble... You preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand delivers me. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. So we have all kinds of things that the psalmist will thank the Lord for, uh, re referring to his, his deeds, his character. Sometimes the psalmist just thanks God for being God, 
Okay, so in, in Psalm 717, he'll, he'll praise God for his character. In Psalm 3416, he praises the Lord for his justice. It says that the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. And his care for the brokenhearted, that's in Psalm 34, verse 18, says the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saved the crushed in spirit. Psalm 34, the whole psalm is a thanksgiving psalm. And so everything in that verse is praising God and extolling him and thanking him for his character and his goodness. Uh, the, the psalmist will also praise God and thank him for his mighty acts. So in Psalm 9-1, we have a reference to thanking God for his deeds. In Psalm 66, verse 6, this is good because we've been going through Exodus, uh, the psalmist will thank God for the Exodus. He says, come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds toward the children of man. He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot. There did we rejoice in him. And then, of course, there will also be thanksgiving for God's deliverance. So rescue from enemies in Psalm 30, verse 1. Healing in Psalm 30, verse 2. It says, O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help, and you have healed me. And God's protection, Psalm 33, verse 20. I could go on and on. There's many, many things that we should thank God for, and the Psalms do model for us how to give thanks. There is a proper way to give thanks to God. But today what I want to do is, with you all, let's open our Bibles to Psalm 118 and let's walk through this psalm together because this psalm models for us giving thanks to God for his salvation. That's right, we're talking about giving thanks to God for his salvation. And my goal is to consider... Uh, not only what this psalm says, I want, I want to teach you what this psalm says, but I also want us to consider how it shows us how to give thanks to God for his salvation. So we're going to divide it up, if you're taking notes, into four fundamentals of thanksgiving for God's salvation. Four fundamentals of thanksgiving for God's salvation. Now, when we think about giving thanks to God, and specifically for his salvation, Let's key into what this psalm says, and let's read the first four verses. And the first point, the first fundamental, is going to be to recognize the Lord's never-ending character. Read with me the first four verses of Psalm 118. It says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say his steadfast love endures forever. And right off the bat, you see how this is uh, quite obviously poetry. It is uh, the, the, it's scripture in uh, poetic or in song form. You see the repetition there. Repetition of a very familiar uh, phrase. In fact, uh, Pastor Josh read that for us this morning from another psalm, from Psalm 106, verse 1, that the Lord, his steadfast love endures forever. And this is, of course, referring to his chesed, his uh, covenant, uh, loyal, faithful love that is demonstrated throughout uh, his dealings with mankind and is written on the pages of Scripture. It's something that you need to uh, really study Scripture and study the Old Testament, study the New Testament, see how it's uh, revealed in its bountiful and marvelous ways. But, but uh, whoever wrote this psalm, it might have been David, it's not clear who it was, whoever wrote this psalm really wants us to focus on this idea of giving thanks to the Lord for his character, who he is. He is a God of loving kindness. In fact, his loving kindness endures forever. He is good. And he, he, he gives us this beginning, and he'll actually say it at the very end of this psalm too. He'll, he'll kind of sandwich it between uh, these two... Con- the, the, sorry. He will begin the psalm saying, Give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. And if you drop to the end of the psalm, he'll also say the same thing. He'll say, Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. So the thing that brackets this thanksgiving that we're giving to God is recognizing who he is and his everlasting character, that he is good and that his steadfast love endures forever. 
And as I mentioned, we're talking about giving thanks to God for his salvation, and that's what we'll see as we make our way through this psalm. But let me say this. God's salvation, the way he provides salvation for those who are his own, this is what most magnificently displays his goodness and his faithful love. Okay, so those two things being repeated are uh, signaling that this is something we should be seeing in how God acts on behalf of those who love him. Notice in, in verses 2 through 4 that three different groups are addressed. It says, let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love endures forever. And if you're reading this, you might, you might be like me and you might say, why, why those three different groups? Is that, is that just a, a, a kind of a random kind of, oh, Israel, house of Aaron? Well, Israel is God's people. We've been reading the Exodus, how God brought them out of slavery in Egypt and made them a nation at Sinai. And then the house of Aaron is a subset of Israel. The house of Aaron would be the, the priests. These are the ones who are the spiritual leaders of Israel, the ones who are uh, tasked with uh, modeling spirituality and even leading in worship for the entire congregation. So you can almost imagine that if this psalm were sung at a gathering, at a corporate gathering, at, at, the, at the very beginning, whoever's read it, reciting it would say, let Israel say his steadfast love endures forever, and the whole congregation would say... His, yes, yes, his steadfast love endures. And then he would say, let the house of Aaron say, and all the worship leaders would stand up, and they together would say, his steadfast love endures forever. And then he'd say, let those who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love endures forever. And so there he's again going to everyone within the congregation, and especially those who fear the Lord. If you, if you uh, do a quick survey of where this term appears throughout the Old Testament, you see that it's referring to those who are truly gods, because it is possible to be part of Israel. It's possible to be uh, part of, even, even in the priestly class, and uh, not actually exhibit true worship and not have a heart that's yielded to Yahweh. But those who are yielded, those who are his, those who you might say are his elect, are the ones who are characterized by being God-fearers. And so this is a, a right, out the bat, right out of the gate as we uh, make our way into this psalm. We're seeing this admonition for everyone to join in doing what they ought to do, which is giving thanks to God for his steadfast love. And that teaches us one thing. As we prepare to give thanks and as we consider how we should give thanks and what we ought to do, we need to study the Lord's deeds. We need to study them ourselves. We need to be well-versed and well-acquainted so that we understand how God can say about himself in Exodus 34, verse 6, when he reveals himself to Moses, he passes in front of him and, and says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Now, all of us might have some different ideas of what's going on in the Old Testament. We may have heard bits and pieces of it, and we know that there's things like conquests, and uh, we know that we see uh, the wrath of God on, on display in, in various ways. And if you're not really familiar with the whole story, you might jump to conclusions. But how is it that God can say right off the bat, from the very beginning, you don't even need the New Testament, you don't even need to see how God mercifully gave us his son to die on the cross for our sins, for God to be able to reveal himself as a God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Well, this is seen in his deeds. This is seen in how he uh, delivers his people from bondage, how he cares for them, how uh, despite many times where they will turn against him, he still pours out his steadfast love to them. And so I think it's very appropriate that at the beginning of this psalm, the writer invites us to just consider God's never-ending character. So that's the first point. Recognize the Lord's never-ending character. Secondly, as we consider how to give thanks for God's salvation, the second important fundamental is remember your dire situation. Remember your dire situation. And this is found in verses 5 through 15, so I will read those verses now. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord... The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. 
I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. So here is the the pattern that is modeled for us of thanksgiving in this psalm. It is you find yourself in a a dire situation. You find yourself in trouble. And you, you remember this time where you found yourself in trouble. And you cried out to the Lord for deliverance. You found yourself in a hopeless situation. And at that point, all you could do was simply cry out to the Lord. Now, as we think about how we might apply this to our own lives, of course, this could, this could be any troubling situation in life. It could be uh, something life-threatening. It could be uh, something like financial turmoil. Uh, it could be something just as simple as sorrow or loneliness. But obviously, I think there are, there are degrees of trouble that we come across in this world, right? There are degrees, and, and let, me, let me tell you what I mean. You can, you know, the Lord can deliver you, can provide salvation from having to pay a parking ticket, which is great, and of course you're going to rejoice in that, right? Or the Lord can actually save your life from a situation where you might have lost your life, right? They're both... Uh, valid forms of deliverance and, and you are right to, to thank God for preserving you from those situations and for, for drawing you out of them. But, quite obviously, the one who's going to be more exuberant and more joyful and more thankful in their life is the one who, was, who had their life saved, right? Rather than just somebody who got off a parking ticket or something like that. So, yeah, when we come to the Psalms and we see these, these patterns of uh, expressing to God worship, of course they can apply to all sorts of situations in life, but we recognize that there are degrees. And in, in the psalmist's uh, ver- version of what he is thinking about, he seems to be in a situation where he was in life-threatening danger. Okay, So we might think of uh, Israel being in uh, slavery in Egypt. And maybe their lives weren't completely threatened all the time, but we do know that Pharaoh uh, commanded that all of the newborn babies, the boys, uh, needed to be cast into the Nile. So there's a life-threatening situation there. We also have uh, Pharaoh uh, calling the taskmasters to double the workload of uh, Israel and make their lives miserable. So that's just a, that's just a rough situation, right? Um, if you continue in the Old Testament, you get to the book of Judges, and we see many times that uh, Israel turns away from Yahweh, and uh, based on the, the covenant relationship that they had and what was written in the Mosaic Law, uh, they were supposed to know that if they disobeyed God and they uh, sought after idols, that what would happen is the Lord would then send on them uh, judgments and inflictions. He would actually send a foreign enemy to oppress them which happens time and again in the book of Judges. And what do they do when that happens? They cry out to the Lord, right? You, you read this repeatedly throughout the book of Judges. They cry out to the Lord when they're in trouble. And mercifully, the Lord listens to them. He hears their cry, even if they don't repent. That's amazing. Even if they don't repent, God hears their cry because he loves to save them. Okay, uh, thinking of other Old Testament examples, uh, if, if we read through the book of Kings, we find that uh, David uh, finds himself in trouble all the time. Uh, no wonder he wrote many of the Psalms. No wonder, no wonder he wrote many of the Thanksgiving Psalms where he talks about God's deliverance from his enemies. We'll think of the most famous one, right? David and Goliath. Here David is, he's outmatched. Uh, the Philistines are ready to clean house and they've got their champion Goliath. And David goes out in the name of the Lord in full confidence in what God is able to do because God has promises on the line. He will deliver his people. And, of course, God delivers Israel through the hand of David, delivers David himself. 
But that's not the end of the story. David goes through his life. He has uh, situations where he's running uh, from King Saul, for instance. Uh, he's being chased, and he has to hide in the clefts of rock. He has to uh, hide in caves, and he has no one else to trust but God alone. Okay, so these are some examples of uh, situations that might be troubling in which somebody might call out, as it says in verse 5, I called on the Lord. Uh, it's interesting, this this concept of, of being, of calling out to the Lord in my distress, it's a pattern we see throughout Scripture. So in Jonah, this is now after, probably after this psalm was written, Jonah will cry out from the belly of the whale. And in Jonah 2, 1, it says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress. Do you see how that is very similar to Psalm 118, verse 5? I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me out of the belly of Sheol. I cried, and you heard my voice. This is when Jonah has been swallowed by the fish and taken from the ocean to which he was thrown when the Lord sent a storm on the ship when Jonah was running away disobediently. So all of this leads me to just think that, you know, we might feel more comfortable uh, asking the Lord to deliver us from distress when we feel that our lives are uh, pleasing to him or that we are somehow, uh, you know, we have our act together, uh, you know, if, if we're... Uh, if we're following God and obeying him, he'll deliver us. But if, if we did something wrong and, you know, we're facing our own consequences, uh, the Lord maybe won't hear us as much. I don't think that's necessarily the case. You look at, you look at judges, people of Israel turned away from God and he still delivered them. Uh, you look at Jonah, he ran away directly the opposite way of the way that God said to go. And God still delivered him. Of course, God had a purpose for Jonah. But Jonah still returns praise to God for saving him from that situation. So when we remember the dire situation that we're in, we remember that the Lord wants to deliver those who call on him because God is a good God who saves. Psalm 118 is the last of what's called the Hallel Psalms. They are a grouping of psalms that, um, well, just to, just to keep things simple, these psalms were sung at the Feast of Passover, believe it or not. So when you read in the Gospels that Jesus celebrated the Passover with his disciples and then sang a hymn, well, the last five psalms of the Hallel Psalms would have been sung right after taking the last cup. So this psalm would have been in Jesus' mind as he's getting ready to go to the Garden of Gethsemane. And let's think about that for a second because Jesus went to the Garden and he called on the Lord out of his distress. He said, if there's any way for this cup to pass, take it from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but your will be done. And we think about the comfort that these psalms give to us when they teach us about how the Lord hears our cries when we're in distress. And then when I think about Jesus on the cross and he cried out to his father and heard nothing, that makes me pause. And then, of course, Jesus would say, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because on the cross, Jesus did not experience that salvation that we long for. No, he was providing the salvation. He was the substitute. He was the sacrifice. This should make us recognize that one of the most dire situations that we could face is being a sinner before a holy God. So all of us as believers have an opportunity to look back on our former life before Christ and think about the hopeless situation that we were in. So Ephesians 2.1 says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2.12 says, Having no hope and without God in the world. 1 Peter 2.25 says that you were strained like sheep. And Romans 6.17 says you were once slaves of sin. Do you, do you hear that helplessness, that helpless situation? These are all the kinds of situations that we should think of when it's simply appropriate to just realize our hopelessness, our helplessness, 
and call on the Lord. Call on the name of the Lord. That's the verse that we just read in Acts 4.11. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we, by which we must be saved. So if you're a Christian today, you can think about that time where you called on the Lord out of your helplessness, and he saved you, and you rejoice, and you want to give thanksgiving to God. By the way, if you're not a believer, and, and this is serious, if you're not a believer, what do you have to give thanks for? We have this holiday in America where we give thanks, and it's amazing to think that there's some atheists that celebrate that. What do you give thanks to? Is there anything to give thanks to? No. Romans 1 describes very clearly that uh, one of the uh, gravest problems of wicked humanity that rebels against God, besides not acknowledging him and uh, refusing to see his hand uh, orchestrating and creating all things, one of the worst things is failing to give God thanks. Just not giving thanks, but actually worshiping and serving other things besides God. But if you're a believer, if you believe in Christ and you've trusted in him, there's no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. You have all the more reason to give thanks. Let's just continue in this psalm. So verse 6, it says, The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? So this is the psalmist's confidence when he is surrounded by enemies. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. This idea of looking in triumph on those who hate me, I think is is well illustrated if you've ever watched a football game. And it's college football season, so of course that's on my mind right now. Uh, But this happens in other sports too. But, uh, you know, if you tune tune into the game a little late, like I did yesterday with OSU and Michigan, because I, you know... We do have a vested interest since our our pastor uh, celebrates when his team wins. Um, You don't even need to watch any plays of the game to know how the game is going. All you have to do is look at the sidelines. Because the team that's winning will look all laid back and they'll be having a great time. Especially in the fourth quarter, you know, they're just like, yeah, this is, this is it, you know, we're, we're about to go up in the rankings. And the team that's losing will look dejected. The, well, if it's a blowout, okay? If it's really close, of course, both teams are really focused. But just imagine for, for now that there's a team that is losing by many, many points, right? The sideline, everybody looks dejected. Uh, they might look busy, too, because they're trying to ignite something to get the game going again. But, but consider this. Verse 7 says, The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. Now imagine this individual who is vastly outnumbered, surrounded by enemies on every side, and yet his response is, I will look on them with that attitude of triumph, right? Like, I'm on the sidelines and my team is winning. I know it looks to you all like I'm losing, but guess what? God's on my side, so I have complete confidence and assurance victory is coming. That's the kind of confidence that the Lord gives because of his mighty salvation and his saving arm. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man, verse 8. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. Man, this is so applicable if you live in the United States and you're sick of the politics that go on because it is so much better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in our governor or our president or our senators or our congressman, right? Or our mayor. Of course, we praise the Lord when he allows us to have rulers who promote righteousness. But there are times when that doesn't happen. But what is our confidence in? Is it ultimately in those people that God has installed? The king's heart is a stream of water in the hands of the Lord. That's what Proverbs says. Or is it better to take refuge in God who can do all things? who can deliver his people even when they're outnumbered. That should be our focus. That's how we focus on giving thanks to God. So verse 10 says, All nations surrounded me in the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. We see this repetition again. They surrounded me like bees. I've been surrounded by bees before. Has anyone been surrounded by bees before? I was refereeing a soccer game... (laughs) Standing on the sideline, weirdest thing in my life, I see this cloud approaching from the east. And 
it was just a swarm of bees, and it flew out of the sky, and like flew right through me, and I'm just surrounded on every side by these bees, and the game's going on, and I'm, I'm on the sideline, because I had the flag, and I was that guy who runs up and down the sideline, and I just kind of didn't know what to do, and they flew right through me, and <laughs> I mean, of course I was worried I was going to get stung, I didn't, and then they flew away, and I kind of looked around like, did anyone see that? And nobody acted like anything happened, so I, I don't know, maybe, but I, I know what this, <laughs> you know, when it says the, you know, they surrounded me like bees. I can imagine what that would be like. It says they went out like a fire among thorns. So he's talking about how uh, the enemies were uh, extinguished, if you will, right? The fire was hot, but the Lord put them out because in the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. So I think this psalm is describing a military victory, and this would be uh, very pertinent. The reason it probably made it into the Psalter is because, uh, you know, it may be that the king of Israel had a great victory. It may have been King David himself, who was surrounded by all these enemies, and he cried out to the Lord for deliverance, and who is it that delivered them? It wasn't the king, although the king led the battle. It was God himself. And of course, this is something that we can't miss whenever we read through the Psalms. We need to understand that there is this concept of the Davidic king, and there's a promise made to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, where the Lord promises to establish David's descendant, his son, and to uh, cause him to reign over an everlasting kingdom. And so there's this, there's this hope throughout Israel's history, because they know that God is faithful and he will accomplish his purposes. And so this is why uh, those who are uh, members of Israel, especially the king who represents them as the corporate head, can look with confidence on his enemies because they trust in God and his ability to deliver. And time after time, the Lord delivers the king. Of course, not all of the kings give homage to God the way they should. And even David himself, who we might say was the best king, well, we know he stumbled. So we never had a perfect king of Israel. But there is a day coming when a perfect king, a perfect son of David will come and will experience full, total, ultimate victory. God's got it in the bag. And these three verses where it says that these nations surrounded me in the name of the Lord I cut them off, that's speaking of this victory that God brings for his people. And then, of course, verse 14 says, The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. The psalmist has no hope in anybody else. It's all in the Lord. So we remember our dire situation. That was the second point. I skipped over something I don't, I don't want to miss. So let's go back to verse 13. It says, I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. Do you see the desperation there? I was pushed hard so that I was falling. It's like, it's like a person being pushed over to the point where they're about to fall off a cliff. Is there any hope, you know? And God, God helped him, right? And here, here's, here's what I want us to draw from this. Trusting in the Lord with this kind of radical trust pushes you to the brink of dependence on God. But when you depend on the Lord, you see how he helps, right? I think this is why the Lord often pushes those he loves into difficulty and trials. In fact, isn't that what James says? Count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. It teaches you to rely on the Lord, Israel was tested in the wilderness. I won't re-preach Pastor Josh's sermon. He did a great job. Right? Those who follow Jesus, you and me, will be tested in our lives if we're being faithful. Jesus says in Matthew 10, 22, you will be hated by everyone because of my name, but the one who perseveres to the end will be saved. Okay? So we should expect some measure of uh, hostility from the world. And that's okay. That's okay because God's on our side and God's going to use that for our well-being. And I think of Jesus praying the high priestly prayer in John 17, 12. He says, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost. He's referring to the disciples, except the son of destruction. 
Think about the kind of trials and temptations that the disciples underwent as they're following Jesus, right? And they, and all of them scattered, right? When Jesus went to the cross and they all came back and the Lord, uh, you know, promised that he would be with them forever. He promised that he would send the Holy Spirit as the helper, right? They were all tested and tried to learn how to rely on the Lord. And you will be tested, especially as your faith grows. You will be tested so that you can learn the meaning of I was pushed hard so that I was falling. But I didn't fall. I didn't fall all the way because the Lord, the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength, my song. He's become my salvation. There's a third fundamental for giving thanks to God for his salvation. So we've seen, uh, number one, we remember God's character. Number two, we remember our dire situation. And number three, we rejoice in the Lord's strong deliverance. And this is something that's been pressed on me uh, recently, is just remembering that there is an obligation and a duty, you might say, that we we have to give thanks, to actually uh, not just let it stay bottled in. When someone does something really nice for you, you need to give them thanks, right? But especially God. When God delivers us from trouble, one of our responsibilities then One of the things we ought to do is to boast about him, to give thanks for who he is. So verse 15 says, Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. I love these verses. I love verse 15 especially. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. I think of uh, Israel just having been del- delivered from, uh, from Pharaoh's armory on the, on the banks of the Red Sea. What did they do when they got to the other side? Well, well there's this song recorded in Exodus 15, and we actually see this, this idea of the right hand of the Lord repeated. Um, so perhaps this was on the mind of the psalmist. I don't know. Um, of course, the Lord's right arm, right hand is uh, di- uh, displayed in many ways. Why does he say the right hand? Um, I think, and I've read things like this, so I think there's enough uh, evidence that I, could, uh, that I could think of to support this. But I think when it says that the right hand of the Lord does valiantly, it's referring to his battle arm, right? Because most people fought with their right hand, and you'd go into battle with your sword. And so the Lord's strength is the one that caused the victory in this situation where the psalmist was surrounded. And I think of um, Isaiah 52.10, which says that the Lord has bared his holy arm. It says that when he's about to go do work and battle for Israel, right? So the psalmist is giving thanks and praise to God and really, really boasting in who God is. That's part of giving thanks, is recounting his deeds. Look at Look at verse 17. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The psalmist knew in that moment when he was facing trouble that one of the reasons that he was going to make it through was so that he could go and tell other people about God's deeds. Rejoice in the Lord's strong deliverance. So here's our application. We should respond sometimes with actual songs, sometimes singing is what we should do when we think of how God delivers us. If we want to give thanks, we ought to sing. Next time you celebrate Thanksgiving, I know this this year's past, next Thursday, well, next year, think about singing a song, a song of Thanksgiving. Is that not what we do when we're together on Sundays? One of the reasons that we gather every Sunday is to fulfill the command to give thanks uh, Psalm or Colossians three, sixteen and seventeen or sixteen. I always I always forget what the actual reference is, so I'm just going to turn there. Here's what Paul tells the church in Colossae in Colossians three, verse fifteen. He says, "Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts." to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. It's the first time he said be thankful. 
Verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That's three verses and three times Paul says give thanks. And one of those he even says do it with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So when we get together and we sing together, we are thanking God. That's why many of the songs that we sing focus on the cross, on salvation, on the ultimate deliverance that God has given us from death, because we want to thank him. We just sang it, right? We just sang, Jesus, thank you. That is a right response, a Christian duty even, for God's salvation. So number one, we should respond with actual songs. Uh, number two, I think we should actually want to boast. We, we, we ought to want to boast in God's Deliverance. Uh, it's easy for, for guys to think about, uh, our favorite sports teams. And, you know, I'm a huge soccer fan, which makes me one of the 1% of Americans that are weird and like soccer. And, uh, you know, I can remember like every play from the game that happened on Friday because I watched it. And of course, I love soccer and I love that we uh, tied England. That's, I know that's a really drab result for you. I'm just burying myself in a hole here. Football. Think about football, right? You know, when your favorite team wins, you can remember, you can remember the, the touchdown that gave them the lead, right? And what do you talk about the next day with your friends? Oh, did you see? Did you see that throw? Did you see that tackle, right? That, you want to boast when you're excited about something and it, and it just bubbles forth, right? I hope... I hope this is what we want to do when we think about God's salvation in our lives. Imagine if that's how we felt about our salvation from sin. Imagine how easy it would be to do evangelism. You would just go up to people and be like, I got to tell you, I was going to go to hell. I had sinned myself into oblivion and I didn't care for God at all. And I was dead in my sin. I had no hope. And then the Lord opened my eyes. And I I, I just want you to know this, and I want you to know that you can be saved too. We do have a responsibility to give thanks. A a third and final application on, on this point is we ought, we ought to sing to God sometimes, glad songs of salvation in the tent of the righteous. We ought to recount his deeds. First um, Peter 2, I think it's First Peter 2, says, yeah, I wrote it down. Where is it? First Peter 2, 9 says, um, you know, you're a holy priesthood, a chosen nation, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who calls you out of darkness. That's one of, our, that's one of our purposes for existence as Christians, is to proclaim the excellencies of the one who called us out of darkness. So we should, we should boast about the Lord. And then number three, we should just pray and thank God. So constantly in our prayers, we are remembering to thank God for his salvation. Praise him for salvation from sin. Praise him for that parking ticket he saved you from, too. Okay? If it comes to that. There is a, a fourth fundamental, this is the final uh, fundamental of thanksgiving. When we consider all that the Lord has done for us and how he's delivered us, number four, we respond with sacrificial worship. And that's what we see in the, the remaining verses of this psalm. So I'll read them and you can read them with me in Psalm, 9, in psalm 118, 19. It says, Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. What are the gates of righteousness? Well, I think it's clearly the gates of the temple. The the psalmist has come. He's been delivered from his situation. Everything's good now. And what's he doing? He's bringing a sacrifice up to the temple. Open the gates for me. Here I come. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. By the way, this is one of the most quoted verses from the Old Testament in the New Testament, one of the most quoted psalms, and it's actually quoted about Jesus. Peter even says, when he's uh, preaching the gospel to uh, the Jewish crowd, he says, uh, Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, 
the builders. But God has made him the cornerstone. That's what God's salvation does, right? It takes the ones that are rejected, that are despised. And Jesus is the ultimate example of this. In fact, being the ultimate Davidic king, I think that's why he's the fulfillment of this verse. He is the one, ultimately, that those in the know, right, the, the elites, the, the establishment, if you will, they rejected him, they passed him by. In fact, the crowds would rather have Barabbas, a sinner, than the Prince of Peace who came to his own. Right? But the Lord, the Lord's salvation is so great that he took the stone that the builders rejected and he made it the cornerstone, the very most important stone on which the temple is built. And he's building this grand design. In fact, this, this metaphor will play itself out in the New Testament where, where Paul says that we're being built up as a holy temple in the Lord, as the church. So God is building up his kingdom and part of God's salvation is that he takes this stone that was rejected and it becomes the cornerstone, the very one on which everything rests. And verse 23 says, this is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This, this uh, stone that was rejected being, becoming the cornerstone, that, that happening, that, that is the Lord who did that. Right? And when I think about uh, salvation and how this pertains to Jesus, right? we always think Jesus came to save us. Yes, he came to seek and save the lost, and he provides salvation. But uh, there is also a very real sense in which uh, Yahweh was providing his salvation. It says in Romans uh, 1 that God raised Jesus from the dead. Right? He did not deliver him over to death so that uh, he would undergo decay, as Psalm 16 tells us, but God raised him from the dead because God's salvation is just that great. And this is marvelous in our eyes. Those who look on the cross and see God's power, 1 Corinthians 1 will tell us, are those who understand the power of God. We rejoice in this. We rejoice that God is so great and that his salvation is so awesome as it is. And so we ought to respond with sacrificial worship. So this, this psalmist is coming. He's bringing his, his sacrifice. And in verse 24, it says, This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. So as you're coming, uh, giving thanks for uh, this one aspect of salvation, in, in this case, the psalmist has been delivered from his enemies. He's also looking forward and praying for the ultimate salvation. And we can do that too. Did you know we can do that? Because, because there is a time coming when Jesus has redeemed all of our souls and we praise him for that. But he also redeems all of creation. Did you know Revelation uh, 21 verse 5 actually uh, Jesus says, I make all things new. That's one of the things that Jesus is going to do in his great grand scheme. All of, all of the, the curse of death and disease and the stinking filth that our sin has caused on this earth will be wiped away completely. And so it is right and it is appropriate for us to look forward to that day and to look forward to God and his saving arm and say, Lord, save us, we pray. Give us success. Bring your salvation. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, right? Verse 26 says, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You recognize that, probably. The crowds chanted that as Jesus was coming in to Jerusalem. We bless you from the house of the Lord. See, there, there is something messianic about this psalm. Those crowds knew that there was a, a Messiah coming, because this promise goes all the way back to Genesis 3, when God promised that there would be a, uh, one who would crush the head of the serpent. And we can trace the Messianic line through the narrative of the Old Testament. Of course, Jesus will say in Matthew 23, 39, even after, the, uh, after these things have taken place, he'll say, you will not see me again. He's, he's, he's lamenting over Jerusalem because at, at his advent, his people rejected him. He will say, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that's when they actually say that in a very true sense meaning we believe in you, Jesus. You are our Savior and Lord. So verse 27, 
28 and 29 conclude this, this sacrificial wor- worship of the psalmist who is responding with thanksgiving to God. It says, the Lord is God. He has made his light to shine upon us. This would be the priestly blessing as the sacrifice was brought to the priests. And then it says, bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. The translation's a little, uh, a little difficult here. Um, and some, some other, uh, English translations may even say something slightly different, but I think what's being pictured is the sacrifice is being bound uh, together possibly with uh, with sticks and wood because it's going to be burned. And by the way, did you know that there, I'm, I'm, I'm sure none of, a, not, none of us are probably experts in the sacrificial system, but did you know that there were more sacrifices than just the ones that you were required to give? There are, there are sin offerings and guilt offerings, and, and you, you must bring those as an Israelite under the Old Covenant. But there's also thanksgiving and peace offerings and things that you just bring because you love the Lord. You just bring it out of the, the overflow of your heart to rejoice. You're not required to bring it. You bring it because you're thankful. And I, I think about you know the church in America, sometimes we just barely scrape by to do the things that seem like we, we have to do them and we don't, we don't give anything more than that, right? I mean, this, this can even uh, happen in our checkbooks too, right? We can just give that 10%, and that's it. And uh, we feel like we're doing our duty, but there's no, there's no joy and thankfulness to the Lord where we would give above and beyond, give our time, our resources, everything to the Lord for his greatness, right? This, that's why I'm saying respond to the Lord with sacrificial worship, Romans 12.1 says, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice in consideration of all that God has done for us. And then the last two verses say, you are my God, in verse 28, you are my God and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. This might have been the words that the, the one who brought the sacrifice would have been saying and singing to God as the smoke from his thanksgiving offering is rising to heaven. So, as we prepare to transition from Thanksgiving week, which I love, it's probably my favorite holiday, to the Christmas season, the, the season of Advent, and we, we rejoice in God sending us salvation in Christ let us march forth into this Advent season with thanksgiving. We thank God for his saving character. We thank God for his faithfulness through the ages. We thank God for his salvation. Many times he's saved us from trouble and turmoil, but most importantly, he's saved us from our sins if we believe in him. And we thank God and we praise him for his coming redemption of people and of his whole creation, right? So let us lift up songs of thankfulness to him. Let's pray. Dear God, Lord, I just thank you for looking with compassion on my sinful soul. And Lord, even though I was born a sinner, and even though I can, I can think of many ways that I've rebelled against you, even after you saved me, Lord, you've still been kind to me. Lord, you still offered up your only son as a sacrifice for my sin, paying the penalty that I deserve to pay. And Lord, I thank you for that. God, I thank you for this church. I thank you for the, the family that you've given us here to love and worship you together. Lord, I thank you for your provision this year. I thank you for the trials and challenges that you have given, tailored to each and every one of us for our good, to help us depend on you. Lord, we praise your name. We want to honor and fear you. And Lord, we give you thanks. Amen. You've been listening to Hunter Hayes, Assistant Pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's e-b-c-r-a-l-e-i-g-h dot com.